I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I am your co-host, Dean Detloff. I'm your other co-host who has been kind of sick, but now getting better, Matt Bernico. You know, I think that like uh, all the COVID stuff does make you forget that regular sick is bad, too. It's so. true. Yeah, even worse <laughs> than pre-COVID regular sick, because now you have to keep second-guessing whether or not you have COVID. It's true. Way too much anxiety bound up in all of this, and I don't like it. No, I don't like that for you. So I hope that you feel better soon. Um, we should add, Matt definitely does not have COVID, uh, according to one scientific test. So congrats. I must be okay. I don't know. <laughs> um, yep. We, uh, it took us a while to get this one off the ground as a result of all that, but we're happy to do it. Happy to be here talking about St. Francis of Assisi. That's what you're getting this week. I'll tell you why in a minute, but before we do, uh, let's do a really quick PSA about our Patreon. Uh, we have a Patreon where you can support this show if you want to financially with your money at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. Uh, we, if you, if you donate at $2 or more, you can get into a really cool discord where there's lots of good folks talking about, I don't know, all kinds of stuff, <laughs> current events, socialism. Uh, there's some memes in there. People talk about going to church. Uh, it's a good party and it's a good group of people. So you can get in on that. We also usually do another podcast there called The Lock-In, which is a goofy, silly, kind of youth group-oriented <laughs> fictional world in which Matt and I are your youth pastors, and uh, we try to help you through this uh, bizarre world. Um, I think we dropped that in our feed last week, so you can get a taste of that. Yeah. Uh, and you can also get stickers and, and whatever else. So anyway, uh, you can pop over to the Patreon if you want to, uh, but that's enough ad time. Matt, tell me why we're talking about St. Francis this week. Everyone loves St. Francis. He's um, His quotes are all over your favorite uh, chuggy wall designs. <laughs> um, <laughs> your pastor loves him. Your mom loves him. Everyone loves St. Francis of Assisi. He's everyone's favorite voluntarily poor bird talking robe wearing mystical Italian friar. He's got it all right. He's even he's even a saint on top of all of that. But um, there's there's something that's very interesting and pretty tragic, I think, uh, about the St. Francis story that I think is um, almost always left out because I didn't know about it until very recently. Um, and that is about uh, his stance on private property and his stance on voluntary pro- poverty. 
Um, wild, wild. Those are the things that nobody talks about. So in the past, we've talked about Christians who found theological reasons for being against private property. Um, you know, there's the church in Acts, people like the Diggers or Thomas Munzer, or even some real wild folks like the Brethren of the Free Spirit. And there are like, you know, even some other contemporary theological discussions around this as well. A lot of people are still interested in this question. But before, well, in the middle of some of that medieval stuff, St. Francis was one of them. Um, so before St. Francis was St. Francis, he founded one of those theological traditions that came out against the idea of private property as just a, you know, a matter of natural order or something. But the tragic part is that after being assimilated into the Catholic Church and founding you know, a religious order within it, the anti-private property aspect of Francis's life took a backseat to the church's interest in keeping the massive amount of property that it, it held. So that's a, a huge bummer. It sucks so bad because like reading some of like Francis's uh, like quotes even later in life where he kind of reflects on the voluntary poverty-ness of it all and some of the stuff about private property, it is like, um, it, it's sort of a bummer. He, I think it, it seems like he felt like maybe he failed in some pretty serious ways in the uh, yeah assimilation. Yeah, I mean, I think the way that you started this conversation is right to sort of point that uh, Francis is all over your your chuggy Christian uh, desk wall art or whatever it is. Uh, you know, like you can go buy a, a little plaque at a Christian bookstore with St. Francis quotes on it and things like that, the St. Francis prayer or whatever it might be. Um, that is such a perfect example of kind of the betrayal of Francis's vision to sort of turn him into, I don't know, like home decor kitsch that you could like buy at Hobby Lobby or something. And uh, it's it's just like a good example of how the radicality of Francis has been uh, totally commodified today, but also just pacified over his long history, even during his own lifetime. Um, the left has a, a long tradition of getting interested in these sort of medieval movements that anticipate socialism. We've talked about them on this podcast a few times in the past, and it's always really interesting because I think left-wing people look at history in particular ways, especially when they're not Christians themselves, and they can pull things out of Christian history that maybe we, you wouldn't if you're a Christian. Maybe it wouldn't be immediately obvious, for example, to ask questions about class positions and, you know, stances about property and so on. Uh, Engels wrote a lot about early Christianity already um, in the 20th century. Marxists did uh, a bunch of historiography around heretics and monks and pre-reformational movements in Western Christianity. So in this episode, we're going to look at one of those attempts, uh, a really short essay from Karl Kautsky called St. Francis of Assisi, Revisionist of Medieval Communism, published in 1984. I guess from the title, you can get a bit of a, a sense of where we're headed here. Um, Kautsky, if you don't know anything about him, don't worry. Uh, he's an important Marxist. Uh, he, like I said, he published a bit on Christianity that is genuinely interesting. Like most communists, he has a, a complicated story. He was a critic of the Bolshevik Revolution and had all kinds of disagreements with Lenin and, and Trotsky, but that's a story for a different time. Right now, we're just going to keep the focus on his essay on Francis. Um, and uh, it's published in 1904, so, you know, it's <laughs> it's before the, the first big uh, intercapitalist war, and everybody's still basically friends at this point, so you can lay all your sectarian <laughs> problems aside. Uh, when Kautsky writes this one, everybody likes him, and uh, we'll fi find out what he has to say about Francis. Yeah, that's right. Uh <laughs> <laughs> all your all your faves are not problematic at this point, at least. <laughs> um, all right. So 
Um, the way this essay starts off is by talking about something that I think is super interesting, and uh, that is primitive communism and, uh, and the early church. Um, so let me read this quote here from Kotsky, and we can kind of talk through it or, or whatever, whatever we feel like doing after I read it. I'm not sure. <laughs> I've, been, I've been sick, and I don't know what we do on the show anymore. All right, so Kotsky says this, the communism of primitive Christianity was sustained by a lumpen proletariat on a mass scale. Small enterprise and production still dominated as far as it was engaged by free men. Collective production, the communism of the means of production, was not worth considering as the ideal of the proletariat. The communism that they strive for was one of the enjoyment of goods, yet the lumpen proletariat shuns work. Enjoyment without labor is the ideal, and so the ideal of primitive Christianity became a communism of enjoyment without labor. The role models of pious Christians became the lilies and the ravens who did not spin or weave, who did not sow or reap, yet splendidly thrived. Okay, so right from the start here, we're getting this uh, description of the primitive communism of Christianity. This is something we've talked about a few, a few times in the show before, especially... Uh, with that Rosa Luxemburg essay from, you know, like a thousand years ago. I don't know when we even did that episode, but it was a long time ago now. <laughs> but anyways, the point is that, like, the, the people, you know, often want to say that there's this uh, type of communism in the Book of Acts and in the practice of the early church. And uh, what Rosa Luxemburg and what Kotsky is saying here is that, yeah, exactly, there is. But the point is that it's not the type of uh, communism that you think about when you think about the Soviet Union or Cuba or Marxism-Leninism or whatever, <laughs> right? It's a, it's a type of communism that's about the enjoyment of goods without working which i mean sounds pretty rad but uh has some has some problems in practice um i think the important thing here is that the the communism of primitive christianity is um it's not like the soviet union because like uh the political economy of the time was not developed as such that it would that would even be like a legible question or a legible idea um so yeah that's like the opening idea dean what am i missing out from this yeah, I think that is right. Uh, that's what Kautsky is after, maybe to fill in the gaps a little more. One thing that I found so useful about the Luxembourg essay, uh, which is worth bringing in here, because Kautsky talks about it in other areas of his writing as well, is uh, there's this kind of phrase they use of early Christianity is a communism of consumption. So everybody is consuming together, and you can think of the Book of Acts, right? It's a... Uh, Everything is distributed according to people's needs. Uh, people sell all their possessions and they kind of give it to the commune, the Christian commune. And that's a really beautiful vision. And it is a, a communist vision as well, right? Everything is uh, shared in, in common. But uh, what distinguishes that from the sort of Marxist understanding of communism is that Marxists are invested in a communism of production. And it's not just a philosophical difference, it's a practical one, too. So just to give you one uh, sort of idea of where this might come up, you know, um, Christians, if they're in the early church, they're all selling everything, and uh, then they buy all the stuff that they need to eat and survive and stay clothed and, and housed and so on. Uh, at some point, you know, even if the Christians had succeeded in converting every single person in the known world, uh, you know, you you would have to <laughs> sell all your possessions and eventually you would run out of stuff, right? You'd have to ask the question of like, well, then how are we going to sustain ourselves and, and produce things? Uh, you have a lot of mouths to feed and so on. And it's that question of production that doesn't really come up in early Christianity for lots of reasons. I mean, probably some theological ones, but also like Matt was saying, it's it's just also kind of not... Uh, it doesn't make sense, given the way that the political economy of the time is organized. Uh, but all that to say, I think it's really interesting that these Marxists like Luxembourg and Kautsky do find in the early Christian experiment a communist sort of vision 
but it's one that uh, kind of ends up with a lot of contradictions because it's sort of starting, it's asking the communist question from the wrong end, from the consumption yeah. end and not the production end. Yeah, that's right. So Kotsky makes the exact same point that we're saying right here. So I'll just read, I'll say what he says. <laughs> yeah. and, I'll sound, and I'll sound very smart. Yet enjoyment without labor is not yet possible as the common destiny of humanity. Whoever wants to enjoy without labor can only do so off the back of another whose labor they exploit. So there you go. That's the thing. Um, yeah, Christians are asking the communist question. These like early Christians, I guess, are asking the, the communist question, but from the wrong end. You know, it's, it's like, uh, who cares about work? You can just pick the lilies, the lilies of the field. You can lay around. You know, someone will <laughs> give away all their money so you can like eat a sandwich or whatever. But that's not quite the way that it's going to work out in the capitalist political economy because all labor, uh, you know, it, like there's there's necessary labor to actually do the things. So you can't just like kind of defer it further because if you do, you're like really just benefiting from someone else's own exploitation. You're not really solving the problem or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so so yeah, I, I think it's a it's a really um, I like this particular way of talking about early Christianity because it's like. Um, because, you know, there, there's a tendency within, like, Christian left circles to be like, well, you know, Jesus was a socialist, early Christians are communists. And it's like, yes, fine, all true, whatever. But, like, <laughs> but it's actually, like, they weren't good enough communists <laughs> um, is is maybe a, a point I I, uh, I enjoy. Yeah, yeah. Or at the very least, like, you couldn't repeat that kind of communism today and yeah. sort of expect, you know, expect to be free from the sin of exploitation, for example, or expect to be free from capitalism, for sure. Uh, so that's really important. Yeah, it's an important point to make, though, too, because people, I mean, now and throughout history, they're always trying to go back to that that initial moment, right? right? Like, um, there's a point even in this essay where Kotsky talks about Constantine, and it's like, you know, Constantine, he was the bad guy that, that ruined Christianity mm-hmm. in, in so many ways, right? And I think that that's a... Um, even amongst like progressive Christians or, you know, you go to, you go to Bible college or a Christian college or whatever, and you learn about Constantine about all the, the dumb shit that dude did. Um, and you think like, well, if you could just go back before that, we'd have like a better Christianity. Mm-hmm. But um, the point is that no, you wouldn't, <laughs> you'd have a, you'd have a Christianity that is political in a way that is completely confusing to the way politics would work now. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I mean, there's always something to be said for kind of rediscovering the dream of communism in the early church or, trying to see what that can fuel for us today, but it's always, you know, not without translation or not without some kind of really significant rethinking, I guess it's, you know, it's a question of not preserving what was done immediately, but kind of seeing where that path might lead. And uh, sometimes you need Marxists to figure it out because Christians um, (laughs) didn't do that. They, because of the contradictions that Kautsky identifies, they chose a different path. Um, if I could go back in time before Constantine ruined it all, I would have had Christians be social scientists, not, uh, <laughs> not sort of utopian socialists. Yeah, don't don't sell that big uh, wine vineyard that you have and give that to the poor. Uh, collectivize that wine vineyard, and then all the early Christians can just live on it. They can be the wine communists. And uh, man, uh, it just sounds like a, the perfect plan. Yeah, I'm in for it. Uh, so Kautsky, though, does sort of figure out, so it's not just a question of kind of an insufficient analysis. It's a, by asking the, the consumption question in communism, it also sets up kind of a, a, a series of contradictions that's going to get the church in trouble. And Kautsky's Marxist lens helps him to see some of that. So, for example, he says, in spite of its communism, the early church hence required the division of society into two classes, 
one laboring and one exploiting, and as it always goes, the exploiters thought themselves to be better than those they exploited. And in particular, he thinks, you know, the church becomes the exploiting class, or at least a significant piece of it, you know, along with the aristocracy and everybody else. Uh, and the exploited uh, are the peasantry, you know, uh, all the kind of lowly sinners upon which uh, the system sort of rests. Uh, it's maybe a bit too simplistic. Uh, probably if you talk to a medievalist, they'll be pissed about that. But uh, <laughs> you can see, I think, though, in general terms still that the story that Kautsky's telling has a, a general point that is true, I think, that by asking the consumption question, the church doesn't then end up uh, being able to sort of get itself out of the uh, the need to kind of preserve uh, parasitically a society that can keep creating goods because the church sort of gave up uh, the uh, ability to, to ask that production question. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, if uh, for as long as Christianity is like sort of lumpen proletariat kind of idea or, you know, it's parasitic in, in the sense that it's not, uh, a giant religion <laughs> that commands giant resources. I guess the communism consumption makes sense, but once you kind of cross a threshold of numbers, it does not anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Cool. Um, well, that's a, that's good. That's a good description of like the communism consumption, the primitive communism of, of Christianity and like what's going on there. So um, let me do a quick recap here. Were the early, were early Christians communists? Yeah, but they could have been better communists. And that's interesting. Okay, so I brought up Constantine a minute ago, and now we can talk about him a little bit more specifically. Um, so this is an important piece of the puzzle in Kotsky's essay. Uh, this is like the uh, you know the, the narrative about decline of um, uh, of like the original Christianity or Christianity as it uh, has this like primitive communist form, and it has a lot to do with this guy named Constantine who was a Roman emperor. Um, you gotta hate him. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta hate him, but at the same time, he's the guy that made Christianity like the the uh, you know the religion of the empire that made it like kind of like a widely spread thing. So there's a lot going on there, and we could probably say more about it at a different time. Um, but I'm gonna race through the Constantine introduction like that <laughs> to get to this Kotsky quote right here. So Kotsky says this: Originally, the early church stood in opposition to the dominant society and the state, which rested upon inequality, oppression, and exploitation. The more the church developed from early Christian communism into an institution of exploitation and domination, the more its hostility to the state and society dwindled, and hence the easier it became to reconcile itself with the existing order, uh, what Constantine brilliantly attained. So the point here is that at the, at the very beginning, you know, the, the church has this sort of uh, countercultural attitude about it. That makes me feel like I'm a youth pastor saying that the church was countercultural. <laughs> but you get what I mean, right? Like the church had this uh, primitive communist mentality about it. That's like the, its mode of operation. Um, but as the church developed and grew and became less of like a, I don't know, um, organic social movement and became an institution, um, you know, uh, exploitation and domination, which, you know, the logics which were already there became more, um, more of its uh, operating logic and, the hostility between the state and the church waned and it became like a state religion in the end. Right. And, um, man, the, 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 the latent Christian anarchist in me is like, yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but, uh, I think that's a, that's an impulse within a lot of different types of Christian people. Um, that, you know, again, if you could go back before Constantine, before, uh, before the church was, uh, institutionalized or whatever, it would be better or, or more authentic somehow. But, I think that's a misstep in a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny how you get this kind of decline narrative of Christianity in lots of different ways. And I do think that there's a way of um, 
telling it that is good and maybe a way that I would want to tell it. Um, but uh, if it, <laughs> the closest I could come would probably be to something like the way that Kautsky does it, which is to yeah. say, you know, the early church does have an oppositional posture toward the powers that be toward exploitation and so on. Uh, in some other writings from Kautsky about the early church, he talks uh, pretty movingly about even a form of, of class hatred that's present in the Bible, especially in, in books like James and stuff like that. And I think that is all true, right? Uh, yeah. I, I'm still a Christian person. <laughs> it's because I do think that that kind of opposition is important and it, it funds my way of being in the world and so on. Uh, but uh, it gets sort of compromised or it, it evolves and mutates over time. Um, and I think the way that Kautsky tells it is really useful because it evolves according to the class contradictions that are, you know, just kind of inevitable, inevitably going to cause friction within the Christian movement and uh, sort of get it stuck in these dominating habits. I think that's, a, at least for me, a better way of telling the decline narrative than like, well, Christians used to be good following Jesus, and then, I don't know, they fell into idolatry, or they got mixed up right. in politics, and that was the problem, which is kind of the decline narrative that you sometimes hear. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, even with that, though, uh, the other piece of this decline narrative is, it's true that there's always this temptation, like you were mentioning earlier, Matt, to kind of go backwards, right, to find like, okay, well, then what was the good thing, and how can you kind of uh preserve it, and, it. Yeah, yeah exactly um but what i love about the marxist story is it's like well you don't actually have to do that because it will just sort of happen <laughs> over time uh in its own way and the way kautsky puts it is like this uh the same causes result in the same effects time and time again as often as the masses of lumpen proletariat swell attempts arise to revive early christian communism afresh after some centuries, often even after only decades, the organizations created through this always become a new institution of exploitation and domination within the church insofar as they succeed. This is due to the logic of the predicament and is proven by the history of each monastic order. So what Kowski is getting at here is, all right, you know, there are Christians kind of watching this change happen in real time, right? They see Constantine uh, pulling the church into a kind of imperial situation, or they see, you know, this or that corrupt uh, pope or, or whatever, and they respond in all kinds of interesting ways. Um, they respond in ways that are trying to, I think, be faithful to that original radicality of the Christian way of being in the world. Uh, but as long as they do a good job of it, <laughs> like, they actually end up creating a liability because as long as they stay within the institutions of Christianity they're inevitably going to have to uh, deal with the same class contradictions that made the first sort of experiment decline into exploitative relationships. So there's this kind of sick cycle, right? That there's this radical Christian communist vision. There's an institutionalization of that vision that creates these new class contradictions inside of it. And then another kind of vision has to come along later to sort of break out of it. So we're kind of stuck in this really weird cycle. And uh, for Kautsky, uh, Francis is paradigmatic, I think, in some interesting ways. Uh, but before we get there, maybe just one last sort of example. Um, I always think of like the early monastics, uh, you know, like the Desert Fathers and Mothers and uh, even like um, St. Benedict, like people who are trying to uh, create a way of being Christian that is very different, right? That is not like uh, based around 
urban wealth, for instance, uh, or not based around imperial power. It's like, on the one hand, you have Christians literally becoming uh, the imperial power. And then on the other hand, you have Christians at the same time, like going out into the desert and like eating rocks. You know, it's like a completely uh, sort of divergent thing. But because they're all wrapped up in the same uh, Christian faith and and community in a kind of big global sense, uh, those contradictions never get resolved. So you have these kind of uh, dueling class interests and the monastics are always the tragic figure because... uh, their vision inevitably is not the one that has property and power and weapons and wealth. And so they're always going to get sort of uh, beamed up into uh, the the machinations of the the hierarchy. Yeah, that's right. There's also something to say here too. I mean, this is when, when I read things like this or come across, um, I don't know, um, the, like retellings of history like this, I always think of Marika Rose because it's just like, this is, this is a great example of the theology of failure. Um, mm. And you, know, you try something and it fails. Uh, and then you're like, well, actually, if we could just go back and try this other thing a little bit better, <laughs> you know, maybe we'll get it this time. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's, it's such a great example, though, of the ways that um, a particular set of material conditions that uh, create ideological positions also end up like still having the same problems and recreating those same positions over and over again mm-hmm. in this like terrible, inescapable way. If you don't think differently and if you don't do things differently and organize differently, you're not ever going to get any kind of different result. But uh, Christians have a hard time figuring that out um, for a lot of, I think, very pathological reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, maybe one last piece kind of related to that that we can get on the table before we move to Francis, because I think it is important, is actually clearing up a little bit of terminology around the term lumpen proletariat. Uh that's a weird Marxist term. There's a lot to say about it. Um, I'll only say a little bit about it. <laughs> Basically, uh, so, you know, the proletariat, the working class, that, if you're a Marxist, is the uh, the big sort of hope of the revolution, right? Because of its particular relationship to how power circulates in uh, capitalist economies. Um, the lumpen proletariat is uh, not quite the working class. It's usually the underclass. In some places, uh, Marx talks about it as the the criminal element in a society. It's kind of like the shadow economy. Um, Maybe in our own day, you might think of it as like, uh, I don't know, like non-official forms of work, maybe would be one way to put it. Um, Basically, there are sectors of the economy that have a really hard time organizing because they're, you know, they they sort of operate on, on the margins. Uh, and they are not organized also as the proletariat, so they don't sell their labor to a capitalist who then gives them money in exchange for their labor power. So why that matters is by saying Christianity emerges out of the lumpen proletariat, as Kowski does, he's kind of saying two things. He's saying on the one hand that um, Christianity emerges in kind of the lowest sectors of society, and it it does mobilize those sectors into a sort of oppositional posture toward you know, the the wealth of ancient empire and so on. And that is very cool. But uh, in Marxist theory, the lumpen proletariat is like not very good at being politically organized. Um, that developed a bunch in the 20th century with people like the Black Panthers and the Young Lords mm-hmm. and other people. So there's a lot more to that story. But when Kautsky is writing, what he's really saying is because Christianity was so invested in these kind of Um, a a class that was not yet the capitalist class historically or not yet the proletariat class historically, it was inevitably also sort of not really able to politicize in the right way. So that's kind of what we were saying earlier when we said 
because of the political economy of the time, of the time, Christians couldn't even really ask the sort of communism of production question. Um, and that's because they occupy this really weird economic class position, um, that, you know, creates contradictions later on. I don't know. Should we add anything else to that matter? Just felt like that was important because Francis ends up being sort of a bridge between the lumpen proletariat and the proletariat. Yeah, it is really important. Um, that's a good explanation. I think that that's probably good for now and maybe more will come out as we talk through, uh, Francis specifically, sure. or maybe not, but I feel like that's a pretty good operating, operating idea about lumpen proletariat, like what's going on there. All right, let's talk about Francis for a minute uh, and how he kind of gets into this whole story. We've talked about primitive communism and all this other good stuff, and it's great. But let's talk about why we're really here and talk about Francis of Assisi and what he's doing in the story. So this is a quote from Kotsky, and we'll talk through more of it. This is probably a good way to, to introduce the whole thing. In around 1207, Francis began to preach communism. He renounced his worldly possessions and assembled young men around him who would live in voluntary poverty but not without labor, according to the early Christian ideal. They would help the workers in their labor and therefore share their meals and their lodgings. They could not accept money in any circumstance. They were only permitted to beg, and if they could not do anything else to earn a living. They were only permitted to beg if they could not do anything else to earn a living. Okay, this is a really interesting uh, description of what, like, I don't know, the movement behind Francis would look like in these, like, early days. Um, and, and the type of, um, I guess, like the the texture of voluntary poverty. I think that's always helpful because voluntary poverty is a thing that I think a lot of monastic orders still keep up, if not all of them. I don't really know, but I know a lot of them do. And, um, you know, what that actually means in practice is always kind of weird. Um, I mean, contemporaneously, it's like, well, you live without, you know, owning private property or, or having a lot of money or whatever. But in 1207, it meant something very specific. And that was you would help workers and then they would share their food with you and their place of living with you. And that's pretty wild. So there you go. That's what this like primitive, uh, like a primitive communism of St. Francis kind of looked like, or at least like what the voluntary poverty aspect of it looked like. But what's really important though is, is this, this is different than the, um, the communism of consumption, because this, you know, labor is playing more of a part in, in this whole story than it was previously. Right. There's, um, they're not just like, living living high on the hog or whatever <laughs> off of somebody else's labor they're actually doing the work as well so there's a a, a communization of, of labor in this account of uh, Francis's poverty yeah I mean it's a really important piece right because uh, I don't know I'm not a medievalist I spend some time around medievalists and I guess uh, the one thing I've learned is that everything we know about medieval life is wrong so I'm always hesitant to <laughs> say anything about it but um, yeah. What I appreciate about Francis, though, as a sort of character in the Christian story is that he is somebody who uh, he he doesn't really get like pinned down. Uh, you know, he like he's constantly walking around. Right. He's a, a mobile kind of character. And so are the people around him. And he adds this kind of labor piece that Kautsky as a Marxist is pulling out, which is to say uh, Francis really wants to be part of the world. And that's part of both the, the natural world and the sort of world of labor uh, to create mm -hmm. maybe kind of a weird false <laughs> dichotomy. But uh, insofar as it's useful, right, everyone remembers Francis for his kind of. Uh, early ecology, you might call it, right? That, and Pope Francis himself uh, draws on that in his own interest in ecology, that Francis is the person you think of who calls every single thing in creation a sibling, right? We all know that. 
but we don't all know that Francis also wandered around uh, helping laborers and thinking of himself as a laborer and engaged in that. So, like, it's a mysticism that also manifests itself in work. Uh, and this is, Kautsky mentions in the essay as well, happening in a region in Italy where basically capitalism is going to be born, right? So he's fraternizing with what will become the proletariat of, uh, of Italy. And I think that's really interesting, too, that uh, Francis sort of, um, as a, uh, an eventual founder of a monastic order, is also operating... Uh, in this time when, like, there are pretty big shifts in both re- religious life and uh, political economy going on. Yeah, pretty neat. Um, it is like the it's it's the bridge from um, the 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 primitive communism or the communism consumption of Christianity to like yeah um, a real <laughs> a, a more proletarian type of communism. I think it's really interesting to see how it unfolds, specifically around Francis. Um, but it doesn't last long, but we'll, we'll get to that in a minute, maybe. Dean, do you want to read what comes next from Kotsky? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, this is, I think, a, a good way to pivot, right? So, all right, you, you have uh, Francis being the example that uh, Kautsky gives you of one of, this way, one of the ways that Christian communism sort of bubbles back up, right, in this society of lots of contradictions, and the church is a big property owner and so on. Uh, here is that sort of pattern of somebody rediscovering Christian communism and figuring it out. But what that also means is there's going to be an inevitable decline. And Kautsky is really interested in both of those things. So he tells you, yeah, Francis, really interesting character, but uh, doomed to fail. So Kautsky says, at the time, the church was the owner of the greatest riches and hence was the stronger exploiter of Christian peoples. Naturally, all communist movements of this period were primarily directed against the papal church, and between them, mortal enmity had to unfold. But the church already knew that one can become the ruler of a people's movement much more easily by corrupting it with apparent concessions than by seeking to suppress it violently. Only when the former was not successful did it walk the second path, at least in the era of its intelligence. Francis of Assisi made it easier for the papacy to walk the first path. He belonged to the naive ideologues who think that deep-rooted social contradictions could be talked away by convincing the opponent. In 1210, he came before Pope Innocent III and prided himself on making an impression on him. (laughs) Kind of scathing. (laughs) Yeah, pretty pretty scathing for sure. Um, But I think very true to Francis's character too, right? He is the kind of person in history who's like naive enough to think that uh, uh, a good Christian would try to find a way to sort of reconcile and create a space for for grace between those two people and... uh, in ways that ended up uh, making Francis a a tragic character down the line. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah, it is such a bummer um, to see how that unfolds. Uh, Just goes to show you, persuasion is not everything. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You got to do something different. Well, okay. Um, Let me tell you a little bit more about what's going on here with Francis uh, from Kotsky. Um, okay, so Kotsky says this. His organization was recognized and received permission to preach. That's Francis's organization, by the way. Um, okay. Anyways, so Francis could preach from the church. A great victory, I guess. <laughs> this, <laughs> um, however, this was totally unlike the heretical communists such as the Waldensians and the Apostolic Brethren who lived in open war with the church. Francis hoped to be able to peacefully use the organization of the ruling classes, at that time the church, in order to imperceptibly undermine and abolish this class. Good luck, guy. 
Yeah, as a result, the, his communist organization was incorporated into the organization of domination and exploitation. His communism became a new pillar of papal dominion and exploitation. That was his achievement. It was communism that changed as a result of the assimilation, not the papacy. Okay, so this is the tragic story of of Francis and like what happens here. So on the one hand, you uh, maybe it's worth pointing out the Waldensians and the Apostolic Brethren who were in open war with the Church. These are the like the heretical Christian communists out there. Um, are pretty fascinating, but they, you know, were not, um, they were not assimilated into Catholicism, Mm -hmm. um, probably because uh, they did not have this uh, very (laughs) naive uh, way of looking at the world uh, that could be easily co-opted, I suppose. Um, Man, the Waldensians are very interesting, and so are the Apostolic Brethren. Um, The Waldensians were founded by this guy named Peter Waldo in around the same, I guess, maybe before Francis, actually, if I'm thinking about it. But uh, sort of the same idea. Voluntary poverty was like a big part of it. And uh, the Waldensians had a lot of other things going on, on for them too. Like um, there's a lot of reasons that the, the Catholic Church wouldn't like the Waldensians. Like, uh, you know, they didn't believe in, uh, in transubstantiation and all kinds of other things like that. But whatever. Voluntary poverty was a big part of it as well. The Apostolic Brethren are the Brethren of the Free Spirit that uh, Rolf Vanayim talks about in one of his books, uh, which is a pretty badass book. Um, but anyways, another group of people who thought that private property was a complete, like, uh, you know, it didn't it didn't mesh with Christianity whatsoever. And as a result, they were like bandits for the most part. <laughs> um, and, you know, whatever. A lot of things going on there. But really interesting. So on the one hand, you have these, like, these two forms of Christianity that don't believe in private property who are kind of like, you know, on the periphery and like, and, and are basically like, they can't be assimilated within, within uh, Catholicism because I think of their, uh, not just their um, thoughts about poverty and communism, but because of um, a lot of other theological commitments they have as well. Right. But uh, Francis, it can uh, easily be um, assimilated because you know, he's not at, um, as Kotsky says, at open war with the church. So mm-hmm. there you go. <laughs> it's not like, you know, on the one hand, it's like, well, Francis, you big, you big idiot for, uh, <laughs> for just like getting in line with the, with the Pope or whatever. But like, you know, the brethren of the free spirit didn't exactly do communism either. Like, it's not like they won in the end. So it's just like, uh, I guess the, these are like the receipts of like what these, uh, these kind of radical Christian movements got to in the end. Um, you know, like, it's it's assimilated or it's completely pushed off, and and it's not surprising, I guess, because it's, you know, like um, the the Catholic Church at the time was you know this huge political force, so it's not like you know you could, uh, it's not like you'd overthrow it or whatever <laughs> beyond <laughs> any kind of like radical revolution or something. Which, to be fair, like that's kind of what they wanted to try, um, but uh, you know, it it's just uh, it's a big feat, is all I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, uh, a big feat, and also one that Francis. I think philosophically too was predisposed to not want to do. Um, yeah, totally. Yeah. I think, uh, Kowski's reading is very interesting. It's what you'd expect from a Marxist, uh, and not altogether wrong either. Um, and it's also true. Uh, communism, Francis's communism was changed as a result of being assimilated into the church, which we'll talk about more in a minute rather than the papacy. Um, you know, he did not convert the Catholic church to the vision that he was after. But, uh, you know, I'm reading this as a Roman Catholic person who myself am still in the church and not breaking with the papacy either. And uh, I think there's something to be said, too, though, for the strength of Francis's uh, communist naivete, 
that, uh, like you just said, Matt, the Brethren of the Free Spirit didn't uh, achieve communism either. Uh, the Waldensians are still around today, but there are not as many of them as there are Franciscans, <laughs> to say the least. Right. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, they haven't achieved communism yet either. So I think uh, it's putting it a little too strongly to say, well, the, the real fatal flaw here was uh, refusal to break with the papacy. You know, I think there's a case to be made that that um, sort of, event of uh the pope not rejecting francis was kind of like you know sort of uh the church metabolizing an unstable substance that's always going to sort of cause an indigestion later on and i think that's really yeah. good <laughs> so more totally. to be said about it yeah yeah let me add this one note too though i i guess i, I want to make sure i'm giving like francis the right <laughs> the right uh i don't know respect where it's due or whatever um, so like, you know, Francis's communism was, like you said, metabolized by the church and it's true. It didn't change the papacy, you know, it changed itself. Um, uh, but I don't want to make it sound like Francis is like this guy who just kind of like went along with it or right. was like naive to that point either, because I, that's not quite the case either. Um, there's a, a really small excerpt that Kotsky includes, includes in the essay that I think is really interesting to read through to kind of, you can kind of hear the like resignation in it a little bit. Or the, uh, I don't know, maybe just like the um, regret or something. But uh, this is what Kotsky says. Um, it was with anguish that Francis saw this transformation that he had in no way intended. He could not have recognized at the time that the things have their natural logic. Even today, some people cannot grasp it. Over and over again, he appealed to the brothers to return to, pro to poverty and labor. In his testament, he declared this. I worked with my hands and still wish to work and firmly wish that all my brothers give themselves honest work. Let the brothers beware that they by no means receive churches or poor dwellings or anything which is built for them unless it's in harmony with that holy poverty, which we have promised in the rule. And let them always be guests there as pilgrims and as strangers. I firmly command that all of the brothers through obedience that wherever they are, they should not be so bold to seek any letter from the Roman Curia, either personally or through intermediary neither for a church or some other place or under the guise of preaching or even for the persecution of their bodies. So it's like, I mean, Francis saw what was happening with his particular, like, you know, movement and sort of philosophy of labor um, and, you know, like what it actually meant to be like a religious person. And he wasn't crazy about it. He didn't like it. And in fact, it was like calling people to like, you know, come, come back to, you know, the way that he was uh, plotting it out with labor and uh, poverty. But uh, yeah, it, it doesn't work out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's good to bring that out, too. And that is the story of Francis as he eventually goes from the dream of this kind of vision with a, a merry band of, you know, Franciscans running around uh, helping other workers and so on, as that sort of becomes a, a managerial task with creating a religious order later on against his will. Uh, Francis is like constantly being like, I don't want to do this. And then there are other people around him being saying, well, you have to, you know, for all kinds of different reasons, whether they're practical problems or uh, kind of more, I don't know, like people thinking like bureaucrats and so on. You know, Francis is often resisting that. But in the end, he he sort of has to cave. Um, Kautsky goes on to say uh, uh, the papacy strive to make the Franciscans complicit in the church's exploitation and make them into its defenders. Uh, the work elements in the order were promoted by the papacy and brought to its leadership, which simultaneously invoked vast greed in it. Organized mendicancy became ever more profitable. Popes and cardinals saw to it that the Franciscans acquired property. Of course, the rules of the order forbade all property to them, not only individual, but also collective. Yet they did not forbid the use of the church's property. So the order thrived under the papal son of mercy, 
It soon lived in palaces and celebrated lavish meals, and yet it became ever more estranged from its original purpose. A far cry from weakening or abolishing the wealth and power of the church, the Franciscans became the most eager advocates of the papacy, the power of which they expanded as a result of the influence they exercised among the lower classes of the people. The key here is, you know, Francis uh, worked really hard to uh, remain in the church, and the church, uh, as Kasky noted earlier, uh, responded by sort of sucking Francis in, um, and uh, in really kind of insidious ways, um, making the very abdication of property a way in which the Franciscans had to be parasitic on church property and then sort of end up uh, defending it in this bizarre way. Yeah. I mean, that's like the, the perverse part of it is like so upsetting that, you know, the, uh, the voluntary poverty part at the beginning is like the whole, I don't know. It's part of the, it's part of the operating logic of, of Francis and like the people who are following him. But in the end it ends up being, um, you know, very ironically, a way to grow the property of the church and yikes, that sucks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting too, because so this isn't just a Kautsky story. You get it in kind of a different way in people like Giorgio Agamben, who's an Italian philosopher. Um, He has a book called the highest poverty where he talks quite a lot about the Franciscans and he tells not the same story, but a similar one where Francis kind of opens up this new way of, of being in the world that is like very free and, and liberating and, you know, in touch with sort of life, like <laughs> in a, uh, a mystical kind of way, even for a gambit, I think. Um, but uh, as Francis has to create this order, or as the order gets created, it inevitably imposes all kinds of rules that slowly close down uh, all the possibilities that Francis opened up, uh, especially as it, it sort of participates in the governmentality of life. And, Francis is this character who is uh, deeply simple, right? But if you know anything about Franciscans, uh, Franciscan thinkers like theologians and philosophers are some of the most brilliant uh, people that you can imagine. And they're particularly masters of uh, subtle distinctions (laughs) and so on. Uh, And there's something really wild about that, too. So it's not just Kautsky, but other kind of people on the left who kind of read the Franciscan story as this opening that then gets shut down by uh, the managerial things that happen later on. Yeah. I'm sure with all the, uh, the, the St. Francis merch flowing around out there, there's gotta be a book about St. Francis and management or something <laughs> that can, uh, that can explain this point really particularly. Um, cool. Well, maybe to put a cap on this part of the story, the, the sad, the sad Francis part. Um, I'll read this bit from Kotsky. Yeah. Everything was futile because Francis did not, dared to take the decisive step of breaking obedience to the Pope. Hence, Francis was canonized two years after his death in 1228, and he was canonized because he, even against his will, had betrayed the proletarian uh, cause through his alliance with the ruling authorities. There you go. So that's the uh, the sad period to the story, which makes me think a little bit differently about uh, Francis and his like sainthood. I mean, like whatever. He's a saint for a lot of reasons, and um, uh, you know, if he wasn't one, I probably would never know about him. <laughs> um, but at the same time, it is like a there, there's something very tragic to the story that I guess um, is is worth pulling out and realizing. Um, yeah, yeah, I think that's true. Although, again, I also think there's something kind of like in the same way that Francis, um, in working with the church, compromises his own vision, and then kind of uh, there's there's kind of a tragic story in that piece of it. 
you can say kind of something similar about the church too i think that by uh canonizing francis i don't think it's completely cynical i think kautsky's giving a bit more of a uh, a yeah. harder read than we need to <laughs> but the thing is you know it's true that the church obviously wanted to suck in that radical impulse and pacify it and and did so very successfully in some respects at the same time um by making francis a saint what you also do is sort of baptize the uh uh the communist part coming back over and over again and yeah. you know you you institutionalize the radical element rather than pushing it out and i think there's something that's really important there too because it it affirms the contradiction and it means that it's a it's a good contradiction that <laughs> that you can't just uh kick francis and his vision out of the church because you know he's a saint just like the rest of them it's a very positive way of looking at it i appreciate it it you're right it uh it uh, I, I always go back to the, that uh, that language though, where it, it's a it's a body metabolizing something. Yeah. And that's true, but like I don't know, man. Sometimes you get some real some real weird stuff, and it, <laughs> it changes you profoundly. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and, you know, but it's like it, it's uh, I don't I don't want to go too far down this road, particularly because there's a, it's a whole can of worms to open up. But there is this like very Deleuze and Guattarian thing about it though, where this is like uh, the the impulse to communism is like a very uh, rhythmatic and like subterranean thing within Christianity where it pops up all over the place. And, you know, sometimes it gets cut down and sometimes it doesn't, but like it does, it's like, it's kind of like in there somehow mm-hmm. and it does keep returning and there's not really anything you can kind of do about it just because of the, the way that Christianity is constructed, that there's that like, it, it wants you to ask these questions or at mm-hmm. least it seems that way. Right. So, uh, that is, that's a good way of thinking about it though, that like, uh, Francis and his communism does get baptized in the church, um, even though it doesn't like it doesn't it doesn't win out in this like grand sense where it has some kind of like <laughs> um, papal communist power or whatever. But it, it is there in this way that it will always come back in uh, in in ways that probably trouble people who are very powerful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just to point of put a fine point on it, you know, like Leonardo Boff was a Franciscan, and I think that is not incidental, right? Like one of the founders yeah. of the liberation theology, somebody who also stood trial in the Vatican, you know, uh, for his his books and, and thoughts, uh, who was willing to sort of have a dialogue with the Pope in true Franciscan spirit, uh, but met a Pope that did not respond the way the Pope Innocent III responded. Um, I think it's important to sort of see that the the door that St. Francis opens is one that uh, lots of other people stepped through even into the 20th century. You know, Franciscans were a huge part and, and are still a huge part of the story of uh, liberation theology and other liberating things around the yeah. world. And like any order, you know, they've got some stinkers in there, too. But uh, people like Boff are kind of a testament to that continued legacy. You know, it's kind of bonkers though, that like um, people get bent out of shape about Pope Francis, about being this like socialist, the socialist Pope, but Pope Innocent III, he, he did canonize an actual communist. <laughs> yeah. So like, why are people mad about that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, it's true. And by taking the name, uh, Pope Francis, you know, it's a contradiction in terms mm-hmm. in some ways. Um, yeah. In fact, uh, I just recently read a book by Boff about Pope Francis, and he says that in the beginning, that, like, it, you know, it would be absurd to imagine the name Pope Francis precisely because these are supposed to be kind of intentionally uh, different ways of expressing Christian faith. Um, but nevertheless, uh, you have somebody who's trying to hold all that together. And I think with all the contradictions that you can imagine, right, like all the contradictions 
in Pope Francis's papacy are there precisely because he's kind of embodying that contradictory spirit of uh, St. Francis for better and for worse. Yeah. Um, one thing to kind of bring the Kautsky piece home, and this also brings us back to that rhizomatic thing you were just talking about, Matt. Uh, Kautsky, even in that story of decline, says, of course, the original tendencies of the Franciscan order cannot be completely blotted out for long. So this is kind of the hopeful moment. The strict proletarian tendency sustained itself for a long time, mainly nourished by the tertiaries, one of the order's organizations of lay brothers attached to it. So just to back up really quickly, in uh, the Franciscan order, there are three um, sort of levels. There's first order Franciscans who are like St. Francis, you know, going around the world. Then there's uh, second order Franciscans that are more monastic. And then third order or tertiary Franciscans, which are lay people, um, who are part of the order and they're working people and so on. Uh, you yourself could be one if you're a layperson listening to it. And I'm thinking about it. I got to tell you. Anyway, uh, <laughs> Kowski says these were mostly laboring proletarians who emphasized again and again, the communist and oppositional character and invoked the wrath of the more lenient exploiting tendency whose leniency and tolerance primarily came to light in their generosity in relation to the rule of the order, the undermining of which they executed calmly. In contrast, they were the most savage opponents of the stricter tendency, whose advocates they cleared away by fire, sword, and the burial of living bodies. The strengthening of the Reformation movement finally ended all attempts to reawaken communist tendencies in the arms of the Franciscan order, as it clearly pointed out to all energetic communist elements that the fall of the papacy was the indispensable precondition of every further development in society and showed the absurdity of all endeavors to reform society through peaceful means with the cooperation of the papal church. So extremely hot take by Kautsky at the end here. (laughs) No kidding. Hot uh, Lutheran Munzerian take or whatever it might be. But I think um, that piece about the tertiaries is really interesting. and something I've been thinking about a lot that uh, Francis sort of has this, uh, as we said before, this kind of bridge role to play in the transition between medieval and capitalist economies. And so he's imagining also the bridge between Christianity as a lumpen proletarian uh, religion to a proletarian one. And the idea that Kautsky puts forward here that it's the tertiaries, the specifically lay proletarian participants in the Franciscan order who kind of bring that to a conclusion in a communist way, I think is really compelling. I don't buy the bit about the Reformation sort of destroying all the uh, communist elements in Franciscan life. Um, But I definitely think that he's onto something about, you know, there's something extremely important about the presence of lay people in the Franciscan order, which was a, uh, 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 um, a provision made by St. Francis himself that I think is important. Yeah, pretty neat. Uh, a pretty neat piece of the puzzle, I think, that, I don't know, I didn't know about not being a Catholic person until I actually read this essay. Uh, a fun thing to learn about, though, for sure. I mean, you can see this other, this workout, too, in, in, in like, worker-priest movements and that kind of thing as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, it happens in different, uh, different, like, I don't know, denominations and <laughs> religious traditions too in different ways. But uh, this is a really uh, good way to talk about it though with like lay people. Yeah. Um, one very funny thing about the tertiaries, just because we're talking about it, I guess. Um, so, you know, Francis during his life as the order comes into being is just constantly making compromises he doesn't want to make. And one of them is there are all these people who are married or have children who are really attracted to what he's doing and they want to be part of it. You know, they see it as a, a kind of revival movement in the church. 
And Francis is like, well, you can't really do what I'm doing. Uh, and he says specifically because like families shouldn't be allowed to suffer in the way that like first order Franciscans have to suffer because they don't have property and they don't have housing <laughs> and so on. So he creates this other thing, the, the tertiaries, the third order, where he's like, well, look, you can practice the rule and you can practice Franciscan sort of life in your own way, uh, but like keep working and, you know, be be a lay person on purpose. And I think that is a really important sort of thing. It's not totally unique to Franciscans. There are other orders like the Dominicans that have uh, lay members too, but the the idea that the Franciscan vision is premised on this kind of bridging of, of labor movements is uh, really neat. Yeah, it is really neat. Well, there we go. We have this whole thing about Francis and communism, and it is, I mean, it's such an interesting story and kind of a bummer, but like you said, Dean, there's like, <laughs> there's hope in the way that this is metabolized, which is, um, maybe a funny way to put it, but um, something I think of just, I mean, I mentioned this earlier too, but um, I, I think like the most important theological book I think I've ever read is Marie Carose's Theology of Failure. And I'll probably just keep making this point over and over because <laughs> I don't really, I don't really have any other theological like points to make. But um, the idea though, you know, in her book is that, uh, I don't know, like, look, you're gonna, <laughs> your theology, your religious movement, your, um, your religious expression is going to fail um, is fine. But, like, finding different places to start over is a really cool idea. And maybe this is, you know, it's one of those places um, that there's there's something uh, about uh, Francis and his particular movement that is, like, really worth salvaging beyond the the, the chuggy merch, the chuggy <laughs> stuff to put on your walls. Um, and I think that's a really cool and, like, maybe optimistic thing. There's there's just, like, more to the story, um, more to kind of pick up and play with and, and uh, mess around with in your own brain. Yeah, we need to make some Chuggy St. Francis merch that just uh, dials down on what he has to say about work or something. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Uh, you can uh, get that and give that to your dad for Father's Day. <laughs> Dads love it. <laughs> Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, like we said earlier, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash themagnificast. You can email us at themagnificast at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at themagnificast. Uh, yeah, you can find us all kinds of places, I guess. Our music is by Amoria Armstrong, and our outro is by The Illogical Spoon. We'll see you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church We'll meet down by the riverside There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no dam between us and our Lord Jackson, keep your hoods up Keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late, oh don't mind, a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon, so come on now, it's still early, at least I would have.